genetic memory of trauma as, uh, you know, that's another type of entry into this speculative archive, um, a genetic disorder, black lung, carpal tunnel, the things that um, affect your body's functioning um, based on its experiences. So I was kind of interested in framing that as a type of archive, which is something that's given power and an authoritative voice. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 175th episode, we're pleased to present the work of Leah Sandler, and you just heard a little bit about a current project called The Archive of Scarcity. We'll talk about that and other works coming up. Leah was selected as one of Studio Break's 2016 MFA competition winners, so we're very excited to present her work finally. Of course, you can check out her work before the interview at leahsandler.net, so please do that. Of course, we have many interviews on studiobreak.com, so please peruse. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's work and links to their website, so you can find out more information. Of course, you can listen to all interviews right in that default player, or just click that iTunes link so that you can check it out in iTunes. Of course, there are a number of ways to follow Studio Break, so please like our Facebook page. You can follow our Tumblr account, that's studio-break.tumblr. And, of course, you can send your tweets to at Studio Break on Twitter. And with that out of the way, here is our interview with Leah Sandler. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Leah Sandler. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing okay. How are you? Doing excellent. Thanks for asking. And I guess before I forget, I just want to remind everyone that uh, Leo was picked as one of the 2016 MFA competition winners. And we usually coincide uh, with an exhibition that you're having. So again, we'll be talking about that a little bit later. But again, thanks for coming on and making an appearance. Thank you so much. Of course. And I guess uh, before we kind of delve into any work, I just want to kind of confirm where are you currently residing and we can kind of work forward from there and break it all down. Yeah. Um, I currently live in Orlando, Florida. Um, I've lived in Florida all my life, kind of grew up in like a smaller, like rural area, um, kind of outside of Orlando in Florida. Um, I've never lived anywhere else except Philadelphia. Um, I'm in like a low residency uh, MFA program. And so I live there. I've lived there for the past two summers and this will be my last one coming up in June. Florida is just a really, it's just such an odd place and a weird like mixture of the South, but also something for more cosmopolitan. I've seen a lot of like visible wealth inequality here and just vestiges of old Southern racism, but also just like a huge amount of just different people and just cosmopolitan kind of uh, existence. Um, so it's a weird kind of mixture here. <laughs> yeah, it sounds interesting. And uh, it's kind of weird to think about because there's only so much that you get out of a place unless you spend a lot of time there, you know, and, and see it. So yeah. it's interesting to think about, you know, cause it's also kind of like a large place too. Yeah. Yeah. Was it something like in terms of where you grew up, where you kind of 
always had like an inkling for kind of being creative? Yeah, I mean, I like I grew up pretty poor um, and like, you know, I had periods with, you know, no running water and limited food and like a lot of just kind of situations like that. But I was also I was very privileged and I attended like private schools on scholarships. So I had like these weird experiences of kind of feeling like my life was a lot more difficult from other people's, which was not necessarily true in the grand scope of things. But I always had to figure out ways to entertain myself that didn't cost money. And that I feel like was kind of how I started making things to begin with. Like I would kind of make my own stuffed animals. Like at one point I had some like old pink socks that I turned into like, it was my take on like a Pokemon stuffed animal. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, it was (laughs) like a soft sculpture. Um, (laughs) I drew and I made weird collage things in middle school where I would like cut up magazines and turn them into like zine like things. Um, and I was kind of, I was always just doing stuff like that to entertain myself. And I never really considered myself like to be an artist because I had that kind of weirdly like stiff impression of what it is to be an artist. I thought Mm -hmm. like, Oh, you have to have that skill of being able to draw realistically and you have to work with like traditional materials like paints or, uh, you know, charcoals, like things that as a child, I like associated with being an artist. Kind of brings up an interesting idea, at least in my head, just because, you know, again, I, I, I talk with artists sometimes and, you know, they grew up in museums or they didn't, or, you know, it's all like kind of different mixed experiences. I mean, is that, was that something like, did you, did you, were there, was that like the only type of thing that you saw like you know like like van gogh and you know like this is what an artist is they paint you know like or was there other experiences or other interests in the arts i guess i was raised by my mother she's a single mother and she she uh my mother was like kind of a vestige of radical like 1960s -hmm. in a way she had art around the house didn't really attend like I know I never really became familiar with cultural institutions I think she was somewhat skeptical of that I was kind of more familiar with like I knew about R. Crumb uh, and I knew about like art of the radical 60s I guess mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a little bit and I knew that there was like weird stuff going on but I guess I kind of was somewhat I guess I had uh, somewhat of a skeptical idea of what like you know now i know is contemporary art <laughs> yeah yeah and i guess i'm curious because we were just talking about maybe more uh traditional ways that people come to the arts or you know think of just painting and drawing um but what kind of uh, i guess changed it for you in terms of maybe pursuing it as a as a career or you know what was the the path um uh kind of leading you towards there through high school and, and things like that I dropped out of high school when I was like 16 and transferred to like an alternative program that was structured in a way that college was. So I had a lot of like free time and autonomy um, in terms of like what I was like classes I was able to take and what I could focus my energy on. Mm-hmm. At that time, I became very interested in history, I guess, radical histories, histories of the oppressed, kind of uh, political histories like that. And I kind of, I was also interested in drawing specifically and building that skill. Mm-hmm. Like I was building the skill of drawing and I had these kind of like inclinations about the world and power. And I was always interested in the relationships between, I guess, like 
art production and cultural production and then power structures and kind of becoming introduced to those things in college, taking art history classes. And I slowly kind of developed an awareness of uh, how like our ideas of art can enforce certain power structures. And then I started to question my own assumptions about what is good art and what isn't. And that kind of opened the door to everything. <laughs> Again, there's just so many different ways, um, reasons, rationals. Uh, but in the end, I mean, people kind of choose what they want to make, um, you know, and, and kind of like what's important to them, you know, like a, there's a hierarchy yeah. to that too. Yeah. <laughs> so again, you know, I would imagine then, you know, like obviously there's uh, the traditional kind of courses that you take, but was there anything that kind of like sticks out to you if you kind of look back and I don't know, think like there's a, there's an art history course where you discuss this or that, or I don't know. Yeah, definitely. There were, I had a lot of moments like that. I guess after I left community college and I transferred to Rollins College, which is in Winter Park, started majoring in studio art there. And I decided to focus on that instead of like history. Mm hmm everything kind of ended up intertwining, but my focus is studio art there. And I took like book arts classes and also um, like a contemporary art and theory class. Mm-hmm. And that class, we were introduced to a lot of like obviously contemporary theory um, and like ways of thinking about like how our art production was related to just the context of the world. This does a greater whole, the big uh, articles and like theorists, like, the art in the age of mechanical reproduction, mm-hmm. uh, simulation and simulacra, um, and different ways of thinking about image culture and like the technologies that we use to produce art. I really started being interested in the uh, kind of the form and content relationship. Like when I started working on like my theme, my senior thesis, um, with Don Rowe and she kind of really pushed me to think, very critically about the imagery I was invoking and then like the, you know, the actual materials that I was using to create things with and start thinking about those in the con like larger contexts. And that kind of, I guess, pushed me into the direction of starting to like have grander ideas about, um, what I was producing, why I was producing it, how I was producing it. To what, what kind of work then are you, were you specifically making? I mean, was it kind of something that's more representational of the kind of more installation kind of based work or more of like a hybrid? I'd seen like Tracy Emin and I became like, oh my gosh, that is like, I can make these expressive drawings that are somewhat representational, but more like kind of an emotive mark making process. Um, and so I started doing those kind of these illustrations of myself and my mother and like kind of scenes of trauma from my childhood and kind of just like these confessional scenes. And I would make short pieces of text that were handwritten kind of intuitively that accompanied like these illustrations and I did a lot of them on paper, but then I started doing them on glass. Um, and I was interested in kind of that fragility, transparency, and those kind of, I guess, undergrad, uh, fetishizations. (laughs) (laughs) And I ended up make, it was an installation of hanging suspended plexiglass panels with those illustrations. And it had like a light bulb fixture in the middle of it that cast shadows on um the walls of like the pieces I feel like that it's such a different um mode of working than anything I've done like before or since then that it was almost like this weird throat clearing thing where I was experiencing like being introduced to 
just ways of practicing that were pretty new to me. Well, it's interesting because again, I mean, you know, a lot of people can kind of like maybe start out with that kind of like really kind of traditional um, upbringing. They kind of get exposed to all these different ideas. And again, it's always interesting to see kind of like what shakes out at the end of that process. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it seems like a lot of people, again, that something kind of culminates or something clarifies where you're like, okay, I can kind of move in this direction. Um, yeah, that, I feel like that did not happen for me until like a little while down the road. Cause I had these interests that I feel like were tangentially related to things, but I didn't know how to express it as an artist at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was interested in like in book arts, something that really drew me was the idea of preservation and erasure, which are things that archivists are interested in. And also bookbinders and book artists because of the history of kind of making books as these objects that are supposed to be, you know, they're supposed to protect what they, their contents are and make something that can last multiple generations. So there's like that kind of idea of preservation. And I became more interested in those ideas than learning bindings that were specific or learning printing techniques, um, which I also, you know, I love spending good amounts of time in the studio But I was really kind of more enchanted with thinking about those ideas and then trying to make work that also was kind of thinking about those ideas in a way. So I feel like a lot of the kind of the roots from what I was studying in undergrad have definitely developed into my current practice, but in ways that like I would not, it would be very difficult to look at the work and um, like kind of figure that out. So after completing your BFA, you know, degree and your your thesis show, did you start graduate school right away or did you take some time off or? Yeah, I um, started almost right away. I had a, like, there was a period of a few, like maybe six months or maybe a little bit longer um, in between like graduating from undergrad. And then when I started my first summer semester in Philly and during that time I did, I worked on a couple of projects, one that I think is actually like one of those like watershed moments that kind of influenced how I would produce afterwards. But I was also at the same time working as a caricature artist at SeaWorld <laughs> and a preparator. So I was doing like taking on all of these different roles of art labor. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to think about, you know, the, the art world from preparator to caricaturist, you know, um, and I guess just to kind of think about it relative to the idea of more kind of conceptually driven work or idea driven work, you know, how would you kind of like work through or visualize, you know, what you wanted to do? Um, was there a lot of like writing and uh, researching involved or what was that process like or what is that process like? I think most of what I do starts out as writing. And that I think I am, I have a hard time thinking visually, ironically, definitely an artist. I contextualize all of my actions in that context of being a cultural producer of like visual art and that history, the um, kind of the piece that I referenced earlier that I started working on after I graduated from undergrad, it started out as a piece of writing about um, our kind of our public transportation system in Orlando and kind of the inequalities in that and inconveniences. So it's not an efficient or effective public transportation system that you can rely on solely. So most people that ride it in Orlando are riding it because it is their only option and Mm -hmm. they don't have a car. Most people, Orlando is kind of like Los Angeles in the way that you have to have a car pretty much to get around here. So I would be very frustrated in that I, you know, I was working two 
part-time jobs at one point and my bus ride, like my transportation took the same amount of time as one of my jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and I just became very frustrated with that. And I was like, I'm going to make some kind of a project about this. You know, I tried doing kind of illustrations of people on the bus and it all just fell short. And I decided to kind of tried working in a different way. I kind of decided that like a map was a really good like visual representation of like the amount of time and also like kind of physical effort that somebody would have to put into like their commute on that system. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to create like this a photo series where I walked routes along the bus route, but like kind of stopping at like places where people would have to stop to do domestic errands, like a grocery store or a daycare or a convenience store or a laundromat. Mm -hmm. And I tried to kind of gauge the amount of effort that would go into running those errands, um, like, and having to do it on our public transportation system, which is something, you know, you kind of take for granted if you have a car, um, like being able to do stuff like that without it being a huge hassle. But so for this project, I traced those routes like with pink string and it just became hugely cumbersome, um, obviously because of just the sheer amount of string that it takes to cover a route that like, you know, is miles and miles of walking and stopping. Mm-hmm. I liked working in that way and making kind of a small gesture that would represent, um, an idea and also, just kind of on a, like a content level, I was interested in critiquing some of the systems that caused me to experience the traumatic events that I was expressing in the confessional stuff. And it was a, a lot of the same ideas. Like I'm very influenced by some of my own experiences as well as like that extending into kind of experiences that other people have had that are worse than my own and far more um, entrenched and kind of the challenges that people face systemically as like the kind of a continuation of autobiography and um, confessionalism in a weird way. Again, I just think it's an interesting idea just because, you know, again, you're taking something that might be personal or or from actual experience and then kind of, you know, finding a way to kind of uh, talk about it, you know? Yeah. I think that's definitely like, I kind of just assumed that that's how artists work, I guess. And then that became how I worked. Um, And I guess that's kind of interesting to think about like the things that I assumed about being an artist as a child, like definitely um, kind of influenced my practice, even as I like learned that there were other ways um, of operating. It's still kind of this like foundational thing. Well, it's interesting to think about how an experience like, you know, public transportation and and relying on it when especially it's not um, maybe it's reliable or easy or convenient. Um, But again, how you can kind of distill that idea into a map or, you know, something that kind of offers a a way in um, to somebody that might be looking at it. And and I think in a way that makes it a little bit more interesting or invites more participation from a viewer um, than say like a, you know, that initial idea of, you know, illustrating uh, figures on a bus, you know, again, this seems like a lot more interesting uh, for someone to find a way in and, and, and think about the work. Learning just more like really basics about operating as an artist and kind of how we choose our materials and processes and thinking about the form of things and also the content, but how the form influences the content and just that really basic idea um, is so important. <laughs> well, and I'm curious too, because I know again, in, in terms of some of your, your works, um, you incorporate video pieces. Um, yeah. You know, this is just maybe a few years ago because you're still in your, your MFA. 
so i mean is it like kind of like you're you're really kind of open then in terms of like your your approaches to kind of like allow video to be able to speak to something or to kind of expand on something i did a very small amount of video in undergrad, like for a digital uh, media class that I was in, but it was never able to be a part of my practice because I didn't have a camera or a computer during undergrad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that I do have been influenced by what I had access to, which was usually like very basic, like, you know, what I was talking about earlier, I had to make my own toys out of socks and, you know, stuff like that. Um, so video kind of only became an option when I got into grad school and I got like a computer and a camera. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) so I was able to, you know, I got, you know, a large amount of loan money and was able to make that investment. And then, um, having those tools, I was really able to expand my practice. Um, I started working, I made twine, um, text like animations, um, that were kind of also part of the transportation project. Like I did one that was a series of links to times, um, that you could click on and then it would have reveal a scanned in, um, piece of detritus that I found at that time during my bus trip. Um, and so I was able to do stuff like that, that was like using those tools. Um, and that really opened that up. <laughs> like, again, if you're kind of making work based off of, you know, these different systems and stuff like that, I mean, again, like even just like with, with public transportation, you're thinking about something like airports or, you know, the kind of things that you kind of have yeah. to go through now. And especially just cause of the, the political climate, it kind of gets scary. But again, I just look at it like, as there's a plethora of things to explore, you know, how, how does that process of narrowing work, you know, like what, what becomes something, you know, interesting enough for you to kind of be like, yes, I want to take this on as opposed to like, I'm going to let this kind of like pass me by a little bit. Cause this part, this thing's more exciting to me. Yeah. I think I like, we have a particularly urgent political situation right now. And I think that has been like a kind of guide for um, like where I focus my energy in a lot of ways and maybe trying to create work that is critical of the things that have caused us to be in the place that we are right now. That's kind of where my interest in like making work that's critical of those systems is. Um, and also I guess now that you're kind of talking about that, I was thinking, um, going to Philadelphia, there's a far more visible problem with homelessness and people are, you know, like in the city with nowhere to be and they're very much present and it's a small space and they're occupying it. And there's, I noticed like there's kind of architectural, um, things that have been made to make it less hospitable to like people that, uh, have nowhere else to be. Like there are the spikes that they put on the windowsills and stuff like that. Um, and I did a project like last year where I attempted to set up like a, some couch cushions on those spikes, but I did, didn't, I think there are a lot of other artists who have tried to do projects like that and it was way more successful than mine. Um, but I think also like, it's just, um, maybe that's not my approach isn't by creating solutions like within the system. Um, I'm interested in kind of like what I'm doing now is like, I, it's a parafictional, um, kind of post-capitalist, um, archive institution. And that's kind of letting me have like the space of imagining how we could function in a different way, like outside of like our current set of assumptions. 
Well, and is that something that again maybe makes sense to kind of talk about related to the to the exhibition from from last year, the Archive of Scarcity? Yeah, yeah. So again, tell us a little bit about that. Again, it seems like again you've you've kind of created this. I don't know how would you describe it. I guess I'll, I'll let yeah. you describe it because it's going to be better. <laughs> okay, yeah. That uh, this is a project that I've been working on um, for I think over a year now, and it started out as a handbook that was exploring um, how an archival pursuit could work in a condition of like universal scarcity and limited resources. So I was really interested, like, you know, I said before, um, like book arts got me interested in these idea of, of erasure and preservation and kind of the, um, tasks and like, there's like very material and physical things that people who want to keep things have to do to the things. And in the situation of poverty, be that like a personal situation or a kind of more universal thing where a system falls through and everybody experiences kind of exigency. Um, there's a lot of challenges to keeping things like physical objects. And I kind of became interested in creating a, like a parafictional alternative archival theory that was based on this. It was rooted in kind of my personal experiences of um, experience, like relative poverty in, you know, a pretty affluent community. So, you know, keeping that in consideration of my own privilege, but yeah, so <laughs> this um, kind of parafictional institution, it sets forth all of these like, programs of preservation that are actually just ways that um, your human body could survive in a situation where you don't have access to the same resources that you're used to. So it was kind of a guide on how to survive the apocalypse, but written through this paradigm of your body being um, an archival repository and a source of history, basically. Mm-hmm. And so some of the writing was about tattooing yourself as an entry into an archive um, and how um, your body also um, kind of records all of the activities of daily existence just through its own functions. Like I used um, kind of genetic memory of trauma as, uh, you know, that's another type of entry into this speculative archive, Um, a genetic disorder black lung, uh, carpal tunnel, um, kind of just the effects that the things that, um, affect your body's functioning, um, based on its experiences. So I was kind of interested in framing that as a type of archive, which is something that's given power and an authoritative voice. So this is operating on a couple of different levels. Um, I hope it makes sense. Yeah, I think so. And I guess just to kind of think about it relative to, you know, how you might experience it, you know, what kind of, um, experiences the viewers kind of take away from this in, in terms of thinking about, um, you know, what you want to get across and, and how these are, are relayed and, and, and talked about for the viewer. Yeah. And that is, that is something that I have struggled with that I feel, um, that I've been able to kind of contextualize recently a little bit better, um, is that it, pre- this thing presents itself as something that is real and is truthful and is some kind of authoritative institution or bureaucracy. Um, so like I do conference presentations where I'm wearing a t-shirt that's branded. I have a PowerPoint and I'm doing these weird things, but it feels like a truth, like something that is official. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I was interested and kind of contextualizing that as parafiction, which it is, um, which is 
a fiction that is rooted in an extrapolation of reality um, that kind of causes a questioning of truthfulness. And I feel like that is extremely relevant right now um, in like our post-truth world with um, Kelly and Conway's kind of alternative facts. Um, and there's kind of been a questioning of um, reality. Also something that was described um, largely by Frederick Jameson. And then I've been reading Mark Fisher lately, um, who committed suicide in January. Um, but he wrote about kind of capitalism's memory disorder and our ability to accept um, conflicting realities and conflicting facts. And I'm very interested in how um, something like a fictional institution can kind of cause a break in that. So artists, I was reading about like um, the Yes Men did a kind of presentation at a World Trade Organization conference where they talked about how the WTO's mission had failed and they would be um, reorganizing as an institution that would help people and regulate trade. And a lot of the audience members who were actual like WTO officials and like people involved in the system were thrilled and they believed it this presentation and they were totally on board with a like a complete change of this like kind of mission and so obviously it's not true and it was an intervention by the yes men but it gave these people kind of a moment that shifted um the possibilities of reality to them belief in a reality that is outside of our own, I think is really valuable. Um, and something that Mark Fisher was writing about is that as a culture, like in late capitalism, we have an inability to envision a world outside of our own system. Like even our visions of the apocalypse are somehow um, rooted in capitalism. And I think that this kind of fictional institution has a role, a realistic view of something that could exist outside and kind of, you know, if you believe that this organization is real for a moment, you have to believe that there is universal scarcity and that we are unprepared for it and that our current systems are obsolete. So I'm interested in creating that moment. I feel um, not ambitious in comparison. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with, well, because I mean, again, I mean, it's because we're talking about like really big problems too, you know, I mean, there, yeah. you know, you think about a capitalist or, or globalist environment where, you know, even automation might be replacing uh, people, you know, doing jobs and, you know, that relationship of technology, how does that change things? And or even thinking about the way the the visa policy, you know, might be affected by companies that are hiring programmers and engineers from outside the United States to to do these jobs, and and again, it offers them an opportunity to to be able to earn more money and, and to make a living, and then you know these companies save money by hiring outside of the United States, and so again, you kind of wonder, you know, with all the resources that there are, you know, how do you how do you begin to kind of solve these uh, these issues, or make people even aware of these problems that exist in the first place? I think that technology is a lot of the time like posed as this kind of a, that can be our savior, our solution to all of our, um, you know, ecological disasters. And, you know, there's kind of um, a lot of futurist thinkers and like the singularity and this idea that we can somehow, um, I guess, burn our physical world and then um, just reassert ourselves as just consciousness in some kind of motherboard. But I think my personally, like the things that I have uh, fears about with that is how much our technologies are rooted in 
our actual physical world and like, you know, the, the lithium and the things that we make batteries out of have to be mined in Afghanistan. Um, and there's very real physical, um, connections between technology and the world that we occupy. Um, Mm -hmm. and also our own, our bodies at a very basic level. And I question, um, whether technology would be able to, if we don't start, operating from a paradigm that takes into account the changes that ecological disasters could bring, then I don't think the technologies that we're creating would be able to survive those disasters, if that makes sense. It's almost like our modes of knowledge and production, we're able to fool ourselves that those could be a solution when they're going to be outmoded quite possibly by the disasters that we're preparing for, I guess. I I feel like I just probably contradicted myself a lot and I'm (laughs) a scientist. I'm an artist. Well, no, but, uh, but I think again, I mean, that's, I I think that's kind of one of, it's an interesting thing to kind of bring up even in terms of where you're at, because I think kind of like really learning how, um, I don't know how to, how to communicate all that. And then also like what the best format is and, you know, how your experiences also kind of, as you kind of continue out are going to get, I don't know, more and more specific and hopefully kind of, you know, challenge viewers more and more to kind of think about these things. And it kind yeah. of maybe it kind of leads me into kind of wondering then, you know, this, this current show that, that, that you have, I mean, what, what is it all about? And, and I guess, how is that, is that project um, kind of like something that's kind of continued the archive of scarcity or is it a new format or so what's, what's the current show? So this is kind of an iteration of the archive of scarcity that is a part of the window reproduction representation project, um, which is uh, curated by Don Rowe. And it's basically an installation of a, an adhesive like two dimensional image on a storefront window in Asheville, North Carolina at Henko Reprographics. And what I did was I kind of envisioned um, one possible location or physical site um, that this like kind of speculative archive could operate from. And it's uh, both a representation of the body as that space, as well as kind of like a boardroom or institutional space. Um, so it basically creates an illusion of it's a 2D image that's glued to a window, but for the image, I used like images that were of another reflective window surface. So it kind of creates a visually confounding experience where you are kind of given this illusion of looking into a space that isn't a space. So it exists in two locations, um, in Asheville, North Carolina, and also at Olin Library um, in Winter Park, Florida. The Asheville location kind of functions as an intervention in a shopping district. Um, it's installed on a window. It's directly visible from the street as people stroll by. And that kind of emphasizes this confounding experience as something that has the appearance and context of an advertisement that's unclear about what it's selling, hopefully provoking like a moment of reflection. But I feel like there's the installation at the library, I think, starts to function more specifically in that role as like a parafictive archival institute, since like a library is a parallel, like kind of has a parallel function as an archive. And I think uh, the, the kind of um, illusion of truth, people might think that this is an actual sign notifying patrons of like another service or publicly accessible thing at the library. So it could read as something that's believably part of the library's routine functioning, which I think is interesting is um, kind of enforcing that 
parafiction and the believability of it. Um, it also, it's the same image where there's like a visually confounding representation of an entry into space. Um, it's kind of a representation of a door into a boardroom. Um, the door says archive of scarcity. Those images are actually, uh, culled from photo documentation of a performance that I did, um, that I sent you images of. Mm -hmm. And so the part of windows mission and interest is in using reproduced or um, imagery and archival imagery. Um, and so I thought it was kind of a fun thing to create a vision of an archive using an archive. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of in response to that. And also in a larger sense, just the malleable nature of reproduced realities and photographs in archives. So I used documentation to create something that looks like a new reality. So yeah, and that is... That is what is on display right now. Interesting. Um, and again, kind of also kind of supported by, by the website for it as well, no? Yeah, yeah. There, It exists online. An archive of poverty.wordpress.com. I need to actually get a better URL for it because I think that breaks the illusion definitely. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it exists as a web presence that's also kind of in the voice of this fictive um, institution. Um, it doesn't break character. There are kind of videos that acts in a way that commercials would act like kind of, um, just introducing the institution. And it's like, it's very consistently branded. So all of that is kind of creating this illusion of reality. And so as an artist, I've kind of had to figure out how to navigate these worlds of like slick corporate design. And I've sourced a lot of stuff through, um, like, printers like this vista print mm -hmm. and i've used kind of the trappings that an actual like institution or a business or some kind of entity like that would use to um give itself presence in the world so that's it's been an interesting like anytime i do kind of a more traditional studio practice with it like i've made books and pamphlets um like with screen printing um by hand for the project and that is uh, I feel very challenging because it's all of those things. They feel very much like a handmade thing and like an art object. And I think that that kind of disrupts the illusion of reality that I'm really interested in pushing with this project. So yeah, it's been like kind of exploring a lot of different routes of producing things. <laughs> when I think about that term post-truth, yes. you, you had mentioned like a long time ago, like I think about like relatively like how little, in some ways you need to kind of present an idea, you know, regardless right. of how strange, you know, like you have NBA players, I want to say like, you know, tweeting about how the earth is flat, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but it's, it's interesting because I mean, like you even think about like the, like a, you know, vacant office front or something like that, you know, and in terms of the, the reproduction project, I mean, that, or that could be kind of something that I kind of think about, um, but just all these different spaces, you know, that yeah. might get occupied um, that kind of provide a different, different way for the kind of viewer to interact and to kind of think about, think about these things. Yeah. I think like, it's really interesting to think about like the kind of relationship between the signs that we consider authoritative and why a certain voice would be valued as authoritative over another. And I think the yes men kind of said something, people will believe anything if you're wearing a suit. And I think that's, it's such a simple like <laughs> idea, but it's so, so true. Um, and part of our, like our problem is we have a confidence in something that looks official and we'll accept something as truth so easily um, just based on a font or, 
you know, um, a design element that looks a certain way. Um, and there's like kind of a language, like a semiotics of power in that way that I've kind of, I feel like I've attempted to draw from with this project, like giving, you know, something, a kind of outlandish, but not really outlandish, uh, future situation, a voice of authority. If people think it's coming from this institution, this bureaucracy, then maybe they'll consider, um, some of those real life consequences, I guess. But yeah, there's like a lot of weird things that have nothing to do with validity that we take as a symbol of validity, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm curious then in terms of where you're at then. um, So is your, your thesis exhibition, is that what you're working on like currently or currently that I won't be, I guess, officially working on until um, the summer. Um, But right now I'm like, I'm, writing and making work that is still related to the same project. And when I plan on making my thesis exhibition, um, and I've kind of been working on, um, universe building and kind of making everything very cohesive with kind of these different things I'm doing with videos and conference performances where I tattoo myself and kind of installations that look like the conference rooms, also the web presence. And there's a lot of kind of elements that I'm trying to bring together in like a kind of universe building um, where this kind of post-capitalist reality can be believable and acceptable and kind of present then after it's believed like an alternative mode of knowledge production, I guess, that's kind of, I, I think would subvert a lot of our just like epistemological problems that have caused uh, our current situation. But I know those are very, very, very high hopes for a piece of art that involves some adhesive vinyl letters and uh, printed pamphlets. But uh, I don't know what else I could do. <laughs> Completely, You know, again, it's a big challenge to be able to kind of speak to such important things and of course, to kind of figure out the best ways to kind of do that. And it's interesting to think of all the different facets that you're kind of exploring to kind of, you know, again, make viewers more aware or to kind of make an impact, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I have, I actually um, have had public performances where people kind of um, acted as an audience that was like receiving this training on how to make your body an archive. And a lot of the kind of the stuff that I've been doing most recently is kind of delving into that idea more um, and how um, like embodied memory could work as like a subversion of prosthetic memory. Um, And that's kind of the idea of instead of all of your cultural artifacts and your history being located in some vault outside of your body, that it's something that is inscribed into your tissues that you pass on genetically. I'm interested in that. And something that I made recently was a video that almost acted as an advertisement about how your body remembers. That's a great place for you to be. You know, you're consistently searching out um, new resolutions to, to kind of explore these ideas and, you know, to give viewers an opportunity to, to experience them as well. This project being rooted in something as like weirdly niche as archival theory has made it feel like, un, I think, unapproachable a lot of the time. I've been trying to figure out ways of being you know, a better communicator, I guess, um, and working on my messaging to borrow from corporate branding. <laughs> yeah, brand it. You got to brand yeah. it. You know. Get, <laughs> um, well, it's very interesting. It sounds like a great place to be. Like I was saying. Um, so, is there is there anything then kind of coming up that you want to kind of promote or talk about? Any shows or anything exciting coming up? 
Yeah, um, I guess just the the window projects um, that I was talking about is on view um, until May. Yeah, it's um, in Asheville um, on view until May 25th on Broadway. Um, and then at Olin Library, um, it's on view until May 15th. An archive of povertywordpress.com is, is yeah. the website for the project. But what is, what is your personal website? Do you have um, a place where people can f- you know follow you on Instagram and all that yes. good stuff? Um, my personal website is leahsandler.net. So it's L-E-A-H-S-A-N-D-L-E-R.net. Um, I also um, currently write for Artborn Magazine. So if you're interested in seeing some of my writing that's about other artists um, and projects that aren't my own, um, those are I've got a lot of writing available online. Awesome. Well, again, I uh, really appreciate you uh, coming on and, and discussing this work with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, David. Thanks once again to Leia for joining me. You can check out her current shows. Again, she is at Window Reproduction Representation at Asheville, North Carolina, and that show runs until May. And then she also has an exhibition at Olin Library at Rollins College, and that runs through May 15th. Of course, you can visit her website at leahsandler.net to find out more information and, of course, to follow her social media accounts, so please do that. If you enjoyed today's episode, once again, there are plenty of other interviews on studiobreak.com, so please feel free to go through all the archives. Again, each of our posts have images of artwork as well as links to artists' websites so you can find out more information. Feel free to listen right in that default player or just click that hyperlink. Follow us to the iTunes store and subscribe to the podcast. Once again, we do appreciate comments and feedback there as it does help snag new listeners. And, of course, another way to help us slag new listeners is to have you share this podcast in social media and follow us so please do that of course you can find us on facebook so please like our page there you can follow our tumblr account that studio-break.tumblr and of course you can send us artwork announcements all sorts of good stuff to at studio break on twitter I do want to thank Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his artwork at SkylarMail.net. And if you'd like to see my artwork, you can visit my website, DavidLinway.com, freshly updated uh, with some new work. So please go check that out as well. Thank you once again for listening. Hope that you enjoyed today's episode. We'll talk to you real soon. <laughs>